with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning and welcome to After 9. I'm Eric Allen, your host for the next hour, and my guest today, at least for the first half hour, will be uh, Phil Bullio. Uh, Phil has some expertise in the area of uh, capital projects and funding and that type of thing. And what we want to do today is get into two issues. One of it is the downtown pool and the overrun there. And then the other one uh, is the Fortis lease-in, lease-out agreement that we had and the $28 million that the city's now received and is, I think they're holding it for the next council to decide what to do with it. So are you there, Phil? Yeah, good morning. Thanks okay. for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on board, man. Uh, Phil, I think we'll get into the uh, the downtown pool first and the overrun. And uh, I'll just read uh, part of a letter to uh, Marin Council from uh, uh, Director of Civic Operations. Talking about the original bu- budget for the pool replacement, it was $35 million. They increased it... Uh, or they got 750000 from the regional district. And then they received a $10 million grant from the uh, federal and provincial governments. So they used the 500000 from the grant to purchase the Ninja Cross obstacle course and reduced the re- required borrowing uh, by $9.5 million. <clears throat> So this brought borrowing from a potential $35 million to $25.5 million. And the total cost of the project to thirty-six point two five million. So that's basically how we get to where we are now. You know, one of the questions that I have is, you know, the city is now uh, going to borrow two point two million eight hundred seventy-six thousand dollars to cover the cost overrun for the pool. Now, I'm just having trouble getting my head around this. I mean, it's one thing to to have a referendum and get the okay to borrow $35 million for a pool if the cost of that pool is whatever, according to your plans. But uh, I haven't run across a situation where borrowing that money includes any cost overruns or, or if, they, if they didn't use it, like in this case, they could just go out and, and say, okay, well, we'll borrow... Twenty or two million eight hundred thousand to cover the cost overrun. Uh, I don't get that. I, in fact, I, uh, I'm kind of shaking my head at it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a they overcomplicate things as well. I mean, the original referendum was for thirty million dollars, thirty or thirty five million dollars, um, and then. Within weeks of the referendum being completed, saying that we were okay borrowing thirty to five million dollars, they announced that the total project was going to be forty to forty-five million because they needed the land acquisition. And you know, so for me, the referendum was an issue already. In in the, in the way that you're saying is that we're we're asked to vote on a referendum without having all the facts. They they shouldn't be doing a referendum without saying what the total projected cost of the project is, um, because that's very much implied when they say we want to borrow $30 million for a pool. Anybody that's voting thinks the price of the pool is $30 million. Then yeah, they come yeah. back and change that, and then they do it again now, right? And, you know, you know, and 
a couple months or a, a year ago, they approved a uh, $500,000 uh, Ninja Warriors course for the pool. Um, and at the time, you know, there was comments that, well, we're on time and we're on budget. Um, and so this, we should spend this money now because if we don't spend it now, it's going to cost more to add it on down the road. But again, they never tell us what the more down the road is. Um, you know, if you're looking at making a decision to spend $500,000 an hour, potentially $3 million later, then that's different than 500000 now and 550000 later. Um, and so, you know, again, they make this decision um, and they go down that road. But, but now, of course, the taxpayer is back into the corner because what, what are you going to do? Not more than $2.3 million? We're $37 million into this project. So, you know, you can't just say, okay, we're not going to borrow the 2.3 and finish. But it's it's definitely um, some, uh, uh, I don't believe it would meet the the sustainable spending guidelines that the city, you know, Mm -hmm. treats like like a, a, a Kleenex and just, you know, abuses and, and works around and doesn't follow, you know, pretty much on a monthly basis from what I can tell. Well, I'm just thinking, like, as an example, if they wanted to borrow $2,876,000 over 25 years to uh, pay off, I don't even think they could borrow that money to pay off an overrun on a project. Uh, it just so happens that the numbers and the way the dollars rolled in here, that they had some money that they could you know, still left in the original $35 million borrowing so they could go ahead and say, well, we'll take this money. But I don't even know if they can do that. But aside from that, you know, there's a huge amount of uh, interest that we're paying on borrowing this money uh, over 25 years. And so it's, it's a lot more than 2876000 It's more like 3500000 And I And I think that's, you know... As you mentioned, we're going to touch base on the on the Fortis, um revenue that's coming to the city, and, and I I think the big concern for a lot of people is that this is just going to create a giant slush fund for them, so that they can play these games um, and decide to borrow money or not to borrow money, or, or tell us they want to borrow ten million dollars for a pool and then use ten million of the Fortis money or not for a pool for a hockey rink um, or a um, or a foreign med center. Um, and, I, and again, I, I, I don't think inherently people are opposed to having good facilities. People want good facilities. The facilities are used. I don't think there's any um, uh, argument to say that we don't need to replace a, a hockey rink in this community at this point. I mean, I would be surprised if I saw user, user stats that, that didn't bear that out. But what, we're, what we can't do is continue just throwing money at money, you know, buckets full of money without ever sitting down and, and making a plan and, and making a decision based on, on finance and need, um, you know, because, again, I, I think on the pool, um, putting that pool downtown was a, a political decision to kind of to try to revitalize downtown or whatever they, the thought process was, but operating cost-wise, it, it made no sense to put that pool there um, and to buy to take a, a hotel out of the tax roll um, to do it when the city has nothing but land um, was even a, you know, a more egregious um, 
this is from my perspective. Yeah, so the guy was saying there that, uh, you know, when, once they uh, found out they were getting $10 million from the profits and the feds, they should have reduced the borrowing to $25 million. 100%. That, should have, been, that should have been immediate. We got the grant. Okay, we don't need to borrow as much. Yeah. But let's just, oh, we got $10 million. Let's add $10 million to the budget. That's not how it works. No, that's kind of weird. I, I was kind of surprised with that. So that's where we are. So anyway, there'll be some more questions there, I'm sure, as time right. uh, time goes on. Now, we still have the, the overrun, and, uh, you know, we got the, uh, the the paint is hardly dried on the whitewash of the overrun at, uh, right. at the parkade, and now we're into another one here in the pool, and, of course, back in, uh, buried in the... The uh, files there somewhere is uh, Haggis Street Bridge and uh, the Winnipeg right. and Kearney Street uh, cave-in and that. So we got lots of overruns we haven't paid for yet. I and think one thing on these overruns is that they never actually give you a budget at the beginning, right? Like, there's no, and I'm not, obviously there's uh, contract privacy or, or things like that, but you know, once you go to tender, those prices can generally be public. Um, but... Uh, what what they never seem to present, or you know, my general understanding or or prudent practices is, if you have a a thirty million dollar project on the books, um, you're going to have a budget that says, you know, that we think the project's going to be twenty seven million dollars, and we're going to have three million dollars in contingency, or we think the project's going to be twenty six, and we're going to have four million dollars in contingency. So. When they come back and say they need to increase the budget by $3 million, in my head, they've already spent 10% or 15%, or in this day and age, you may want to be, how how wild pricing it has been. You know, you should be budgeting even 20% contingency on a lot of your your projects with the way the supply chain has been the last year, year and a half. So when you sit down and say to yourself, oh, you know, that's a reasonable amount uh, contingency, you know, uh, you know. I think people understand that things happen. People have done renovations in their homes, and they've opened up the wall and found something. You know, those things happen. Um, but when it's continuous, it's uh, it, it, it needs to be, you know, taken as a sign that something's wrong. Um, and at the same time, you know, when you go into that project, you say to yourself, okay, you know, I think I can get it done for twenty, you know, for twenty-five million, and I'm gonna, you know. And for some overruns, um, and then so in this situation, they're spending the planning for the overrun, the contingency, and then they're going back to the well for another three million. So I, 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 I or they're not budgeting any contingency, which is ridiculous. Yeah, something certainly haywire uh, there. And another one I just wanted to touch on here, you know, that two million eight hundred seventy-six thousand overrun, uh, same letter. Says roughly two thirds, one point seven million of these costs are attributed either directly or indirectly to the steel primer deficiency. As reported to council last July, one million in cost estimate at that time, following the delivery of structural components to the worksite, it was determined that the primer was specified in error, whatever that means, and would require significant remediation work. Importantly, administration is seeking compensation to reduce the overhaul overall primary remediation cost overrun. The $1.7 million attributed to steel primary deficiency 
includes primary remediation costs incurred to date, plus a contingency for future potential expenses, including recovery. This total is subject to potential recovery action. Supposedly, they're going to get some back. So this primer, I mean, I'm having trouble, again, getting my head around a million seven hundred for putting primer on some steel beams. Uh, that, that seems like it's the whole cost of the beams probably wouldn't be much more than that. Yeah, I'm not sure the, the concern in that um, that portion of the letter that, that was flagged for me is that in the way I read that, they're saying that the, the contractor supplied the beams as specified and that they um, and that the city specified the wrong fiber. So we, we specified a, a coding A uh, contract to provide coding A as per the contract. We later determined that coding A wasn't sufficient and we wanted to change it to B. Um, so, um, you know, at that point, my question is, who who are we using to specify this? Uh, you know, we're, we're, who's, the, who's the engineer? You know, what's our recourse with the engineering firm that, that made the specification? You know, was this a, was this a error, a staff error? Was this an engineering error? Was it something that mixed? You know, you know, but there's never any, uh, never any questions or investigations so that we can learn from our mistakes and move on. You know, as far as the cost goes, um, I don't know what was involved, but you're basically taking a, a product cost, uh, you know, you're basically taking something that was probably done on a factory floor, you know, with efficiency and turning it into a, a manual uh, piece. Um, and potentially, even if it did cost less to um, take to just get new steel, um, there would have been a time time factor that may have been factored in. But again, we don't we never know. If any, we don't get any details. We just kind of get that that vague you know, letter that says, "Oh, there's a, a, a an error in the spec," and it's like, well, you know, and and so those are again, those are the things where you know you don't get the the information publicly. Yeah, well, that's what I'm thinking. The uh, you know when when you turn around and borrow that money. And now you're up around three million five hundred thousand dollars for a clerical error of some sort, or somebody put in the wrong uh, information on on what they wanted. I mean, you know, somebody should be taking responsibility for that. And uh, I'm not hearing anything. I'm just hearing, well, we'll borrow this money and carry on up to Kyber, and hopefully it won't get too much higher. Right. So, well, hundred percent. And you know, I don't know why uh, why you wouldn't be. Um, why council wouldn't be asking those questions? Yeah, good question. That's their, that's their job to ask those questions and not to just shrug their shoulders and bang the gavel on another three million dollars. Yeah, they never seem to. to uh, oops, I guess we got to go here, take a break, and uh, we'll be back shortly, Phil. There's a river of birds in my a series of news and current affairs programs by and about women around the world. Produced and distributed by the Women's International News Gathering Service. Listen for Wings at its new time, Wednesday nights at 9.30, here on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
Ron's Hole in the Wall is now open six days a week in the Q3 Creative Business Hub. Stop by and check out his great assortment of books, magazines, DVDs, and collectibles Monday through Friday between 10 and 2. Ron's Hole in the Wall is also open during the Q3 Community Market, Saturdays from 8.30 to 2. Drop in regularly as there's always something different in store. Ron's Hole in the Wall is now open Monday through Saturday in the Q3 Creative Business Hub, downtown at the corner of Quebec and 3rd. Tops and Bottoms continues to provide the women of Prince George with great support. Make an appointment today and take advantage of their unsurpassed one-on-one fitting service. Tops and Bottoms will make sure that your bra is comfortable and fits you well. Need a new bra? No problem. Make an appointment online at topsandbottoms.ca or call 250-614-1553. Tops and Bottoms, great support for the women of Prince George. Forecast for Environment Canada. Mainly cloudy this morning with showers. Winds from the south at 20, becoming west 20, gusting to 50 near noon. A risk of thunderstorms this afternoon and a high of 11. Tonight, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers early this evening. Gusting west winds becoming light, clearing overnight, a low of 1 with a risk of frost. A mix of sun and cloud on Tuesday, wind becoming south 20 near noon and a high of 10. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back, Phil, and I think we'll just jump from the uh, the uh, swimming pool project and we'll go over to uh, look at this Fortis lease-in, lease-out arrangement. <clears throat> that was originally set up, I think, or at least there was a letter written to Council back May 30th, 2012. Um it's been around for a long time. 17 years, uh, they had an option to either renew it or pay it out. They'd, Fortis decided to pay it out, and there was a $29 million payout. We had to pay some expenses for some other stuff. We ended up with, uh, I think the magic number is $28.3 million. City now wants to maybe hold that into uh, in the Fortis uh, account until the new council is elected and then decide what they want to do with it. Um, and of course, I'm guessing that there's a lot of people around town kind of got the, their ears in the air and kind of looking to see, you know, what we're going to do with all this money. So before we get into it or before I give it to you, I was just kind of thinking that, you know, we should keep in mind that this Fortis arrangement was, uh, you know, the, the, uh, plan was the money would be for the citizens of Prince George. And I think we have to be careful when we get into, like it's been mentioned a couple of times, maybe put it into a performing arts center, put it into a skating rink, put it into whatever. <clears throat> uh, some of those things, like a, a, a performing arts center, probably on a regular basis, something like our swimming pool downtown is... You know, you might have 800 to 1,000 people that might actually use it year-round. Uh, so that in a city of 80,000, that's certainly not spreading the money around for everybody in the city. It's actually targeted it, or targeting it to uh, specific people in the community, which, I don't know, what's your take on that? Do you think that was the intent? Um, I think from my perspective, the, you know, whether you take... It's all one big pool of money. So if you spend it on a, you know, if you say you're going to put it directly towards the performing arts center, I mean, a portion is still going to a hockey rink, is still going to, you know, to all the other services that aren't 
um, funded by by user fees like the sewer, sewer and water, and and, uh, and those types of pieces, right? So because of, if you if you treat it as one pot of money, which which you know in my head it is, which I think they forget often, um, that how it's directed there um, is is a, is a different you know is is a bit semantics because it's going to be it's going to help. You know, if you don't have to borrow money for a performing arts center, it lets you, you know, freeze up capital for a hockey rink, freeze up capital for roads, those types of things. I think, however, what we're what we're lacking is a comprehensive, uh, you know, review of where we're at, where we, you know, where we need to be to maintain our facilities, where we need to go, and, and a bit of a plan and how we're going to get there financially. At, at the end of the day, you know. People are, you know, they, they forget that, you know, they, they want to give the implication that this is like a windfall of money when, when actually it was a, a sale of a, of a city asset. We sold a city asset to Fortis, and that money should 100% go back to the citizens. Um, and there are many ways, you know, that can be done. You could you could give a, a rebate to every um, home, homeowner that paid, paid taxes. You could... Uh, you could put it into a into a fund. You could just use it to immediately pay down debt and uh, reduce our 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 debt service loads. Um, you know, but I think what you know they need to do is they need to you know give us a plan um, of what what our our financial issues facing us are and how they want to, how they plan to get there, um, and then um, and how that how that twenty eight point three million dollars plays into that plan. And I believe there should be a referendum on whether we want to do it. And perhaps there should be some options put out. You know, do you want money back? Or do you want us to spend it on something else? Or, you know, here's our plan. Are you guys good with that, yes or no? Um, because if you were to borrow $28.3 million, there would be a referendum, unless they did the alternative approval process, I guess. But if they, but, you know, there would be a referendum on borrowing 28.3 so I think how to spend 28.3 that came to you as a as a deal uh, as part of an asset sale should should be treated sim- in the same in the same vein and there should be a referendum and they should be forced to put out a uh, a plan and let the let the people have a say on whether they agree with that plan or not yeah I would uh, I would agree with that too I think the you know, the the thing that we're overlooking here, and Kyle Sampson mentioned it at a meeting there a while back, that, you know, the previous council, uh, 17 years ago or something, or maybe not quite that long ago, indicated that uh, some of the money from this uh, buyout should go towards the Performing Arts Center. But he was wondering how a council could sort of decide where this money should go in the future, not even knowing whether, in fact, there was going to be any money because had they renewed the lease for another 17 years, there wouldn't have been any. But they put it in there and got it into the records that maybe the money should go towards uh, Performing Arts Center. So anyway, uh, so it needs to be looked at. And, of course, you know, there was two or three different attempts to get a Performing Arts Center in this town over the years, and it wasn't that well-received, so... You know, if you take this money that now is supposed to be for all citizens of Prince George and target it specifically for uh, specific user groups, whether it's hockey, performing arts, or whatever, 
you're kind of shortchanging some of the people there. So uh, I'm more inclined. I'm really not totally have my mind made. I'm kind of inclined to look at it from a tax point of view. Uh, where do, what does the taxpayer get out of this? Right, and, I, and again, I think that that's where where you know I'm. I don't think uh, you know me personally. I, I I think we could use a uh, uh, a better performing arts center. Um, I, I think the location of the existing one is not is is not great. Um, I think the condition of the existing one and what we have to put into it makes it probably more impending. But without having a plan, you know, and without without you know immediately banging the gavel on the most expensive performance arts center we can ever find, and you know, talking about user fees and how that's going to be funded, and, and we have to protect, you know, how the operations are going to be funded, and those types of pieces. I, I think we are putting the cart before the horse by by saying that. Um, you know, I think like I think at the time council council said uh, council. Had had the ability. I'm pretty sure that there was a referendum on the on the Fortis, um, and if council wanted to, they could have made that part of that referendum saying that any any profits realized would go towards pro- performing arts center. That could have been part of the referendum, and they didn't. And so, any talk that that was the original intent is just mock and and probably largely revisionist um, uh, history. And probably a large portion of hey, I want to get reelected, so let's vaguely say that we, uh, you know, support this money going to the performing arts center without actually having to commit a nickel and, and just defer that decision for future councils. Um, but in the meantime, I look good by by saying that. So, so I, I don't think you can take it with a grain of salt anything that was said. In, in, like you said, 15 years ago, when the when the when the plan was made, because they could have made it part of the of the bylaw, they could have made it part of the deal, they could have made it part of the referendum. There was all kinds of things we could have done to make it official, but they didn't. So, you know, so it's not official. So let's like, you know, let's not even bring it up. Okay, I guess we're going to have to call her a day here, Phil. I appreciate you coming on and uh, discussing this. And sounds like there's going to be a lot more discussion on it before we spend that money. So we might have to do it again later. Thank you very much. Take care. Lunch is being served at the Heart Pioneer Center. Monday through Friday, enjoy a nutritious and delicious meal at a great price. Stop by the center to pick up this month's menu schedule, then dine in or order ahead for takeout. For more information, contact the center by phone at 250-962-6712 or email heartpioneer at shaw.ca. The Heart Pioneer Center, open for lunch Monday through Friday at 6986 Heart Highway. This month, the National Film Board is streaming more movies than ever, free of charge. Asian and Jewish communities are being spotlighted during this, their Heritage Month. Two films from the second edition of the Comic Strip Chronicles and films honoring Governor General's Performing Arts Award winners will also become available, as will Kitra Kahana's poignant documentary short, Perfecting the Art of Longing. Stream these and other National Film Board presentations at nfb.ca or check out their blog at blog.nfb.ca. Advocate's annual Walk for Life is coming up soon, and this year it will be an in-person walk for the first time in Prince George. Create your own fundraising page and commit to walking or running 5 or 10K, then invite your friends and family to sponsor you. The first ever Prince George Walk for Life in support of Advocate Life and Education Services, Saturday, May 28th at Clayton Memorial Park. Sign up today through advocate.ca. 
The Prince George Community Foundation still has a few raffle tickets remaining on a beautiful diamond, gold, and aquamarine necklace donated by Daryl Hubble and Hubble designer Goldsmith. Tickets are available at the Foundation office on 7th by phone or by email to info at pgcf.ca. Must be 19 or older, know your limit, play within it. In support of the Community Foundation and valued at nearly $7,000, the draw for this one-of-kind necklace will be at noon today. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. And now for the uh, balance of the show, we have uh, Peter Ewart. Peter's going to be talking about the Site C and, uh, again, <clears throat> the catastrophic overruns we have there. And uh, then we'll have Herb Martin on there. And Herb's going to be talking about the uh, problems in uh, McKenzie with the forest industry and mills shutting down, etc. So I got them both online. I think we'll go to Peter first and, and get on to the Site C thing. And uh, uh, you can kind of get in on that also, uh Herb, after uh, Peter does his spiel. Yep. Okay, Peter. Uh, Eric, um, you know, the Premier Horgan went up to the peace countries just recently to visit the Site C Dam project. And just for the, you know, those who may not be familiar, the Site C is the third dam on the Peace River, which is expected to generate 1,100 megawatts a year of electricity. And it was approved back in 2014 by the uh, previous Liberal government. And, of course, while in opposition, Horgan and others in the NDP appeared skeptical about the project, complained about the cost, that it didn't go through the B.C. Utilities Commission process, etc. But um, once in power, the, Hor- the Horgan government went ahead with the project, even though there were, you know, projected overruns already. And at the same time, there has been a lot of opposition from indigenous uh, nations as well as farmers, environmentalists, and and so on. Every year they have Paddle for the Peace event every year to uh, protest the Site C uh, thing. So if you fast forward to 2022, the cost of Site C has ballooned from $8 billion to an astounding $16 billion. In addition, there's been big geotechnical problems with the ground foundations, which, uh, you know, could threaten the cost even more. Anyway, in any case, Horgan decided to go up and visit Site C, but didn't let the press or public know until the last moment. You know, like what some people think is maybe this was to avoid any kind of opposition. And he refused to speak to the media, but left to that to his uh, energy minister. But anyway, um, the government claimed that in his later statement that the Site C is on budget and on time, even though it is double over the budget and a year behind schedule. And I should note that the opposition back in 2014, you know, it came from, you know, there were farmers, environmentalists, indigenous people, but it also came from people who were directly involved in the uh, uh, energy sector of the province. You had a former head of BC Hydro became a vehement critic of this whole thing, you know, saying that, uh, you know, like the whole implication was that there was going to be cost overruns and that this could actually mean higher hydro rates for uh, the big users, the mills and so on, that uh, mills and mines and so on that, that utilize the power. Uh, and then there were other people in the um, energy establishments who uh, raised the doubts. But nonetheless, 
the government's plunged ahead and, um, you know, like, you get different answers in terms of what this is going to be used for. You know, like some say it's uh, going to be used to uh, power fracking and LNG installations. Others saying that there's projected power needs that need to be addressed. And then others, uh, others, the critics say that this could end up being a stranded, a stranded expensive asset. So that's sort of just a brief overview of, um, of the Premier's trip and where things are at with Site C. More to come. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I see he was using a term uh, when he was up there they call uh, dispatchable power. So that was a new one to me. And, uh, that's just to get it on-demand power, but uh, I didn't realize that uh, uh, a dam like that would be dispatchable power. Dispatchable fuel resources include nuclear, coal, and natural gas. These fuels are highly reliable because each fuel is constant supply. So at one time, uh, hydro wasn't considered uh, dispatchable. Maybe it is now because if they're not using all their uh, turbines, they can turn one on at any time and be able to service uh, other electrical needs. So that's one of the things that came out of him being up there. But, of course, the other one is, uh, you know, I, I just shake my head with $6 billion overrun and... Uh, Nobody's paying much attention to it. It's like we got billions just laying around. We can pick it up anytime. I mean, it's going to be reflected uh, eventually on our hydro bills. Do you want to get in on that, uh, Herb? Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> kind of a uh, sad state of affairs where BC Hydro keeps pushing ahead uh, with the one thing they know how to do, which is build dams. Uh, look, in the States last year, they built uh, uh, wind, uh, wind turbine facilities that um, produce uh, 16,000 uh, megawatts of, of, uh, of electricity. That's last year alone in the U.S. And when this, when Site C will, will, uh, will finally be built, it'll produce 1,100 megawatts at, at, at probably triple or quadruple the, the price of electricity that these wind farms are producing um, electricity for in the States. So this, this sort of goes back to where... Um, uh, Site C got um, uh, green carded uh, without having to go through the BC Utilities Commission because that would have put a stop to this this uh, this boondoggle. And uh, it, but it never happened. The Liberals uh, uh, basically uh, uh, eliminated that uh, that need for approval, and so we've got uh, <clears throat> a white elephant on our hands that. Uh, I guess we really can't afford, but uh, we're in for it so in so deep now that we can't turn back. Yeah, I seen a comment the other day or something that apparently there's four thousand people working there at the moment, and uh, you know this is a huge mega project. Uh, construction companies, you know, six turbines had to be manufactured down in South America, transported up here. Like it's huge, and all kinds of people can make all kinds of money on these kinds of projects, but. Uh, at the end of the day, when there's like billions of dollars in overruns or something, it's the BC Hydro uh, customers and the provincial government that's going to get stuck with the extra costs. So, you know, that's down the road. I'll probably be long gone by then. So we're going to just take a little break here. We'll come back, uh, Peter, and maybe we'll get you back in on it. 
On July 5th, Vantage Point presents Board Fundamentals, Critical Role of the Board Chair. In this three-hour evening workshop, current or incoming board chairs will learn key strategies to engage their board in achieving the organizational mission by fully understanding the board chair role, moving towards a governance model, and generating ideas for a leadership action plan. Registration and full details are available through the calendar link under training at thevantagepoint.ca. Board Fundamentals, Critical Role of the Board Chair, Tuesday, July 5th from 5.30 to 8.30 via Zoom. The Alzheimer's Society of BC is continuing their series of online webinars. Everyone is encouraged to learn more about dementia and its stark impact on Canadians through their website, alzbc.org. While there, you can also register for their free webinars or watch previous presentations. The next webinar is on understanding care conferences with guest speakers Dr. Gloria Purveen and Heather Cook, Wednesday from 2 to 3. The Alzheimer's Society of BC, bringing you support and information for dementia at alzbc.org. Join Two Rivers Gallery on May 27th for two hours of guided oil painting. It's an evening dedicated to the influential work of Bob Ross. Paint some happy little trees and leave with your very own landscape masterpiece. Open to artists of all experience levels, including beginners. Cost is $30 with registration available through Two Rivers Gallery. Honoring our Ross Paint Night, Friday, May 27th from 7 to 9 at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. Forecast for Environment Canada, mainly cloudy this morning with showers, winds from the south at 20, becoming west 20, gusting to 50 near noon. A risk of thunderstorms this afternoon and a high of 11. Tonight, mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of showers early this evening, gusting west winds becoming light, clearing overnight, a low of 1 with a risk of frost. A mix of sun and cloud on Tuesday, wind becoming south 20 near noon and a high of 10. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. I think, Peter, what we'll do is uh, we'll get Herb to do his McKenzie thing, and in the last five or ten minutes there, we'll uh, the three of us will just kick around both issues, the Site C and uh, McKenzie. So do you want to go ahead and do that, Herb? Yeah, there, there was an interesting article last week in the Prince George Citizen. Um, uh, the article is about how Conifex, United Steelworkers, and the District of McKenzie uh, have all got together and, and criticized the Ministry of Forests. Uh, basically, it turns out for um, uh, they not not allowing the uh, the forest industry there to uh, harvest uh, more greenwood because they, there's um, an abundance of um, uh, diseased and, and dying pine forest uh, there and spruce uh, that uh, is not being harvested at the uh, at the moment. I think the Ministry of Forests figured there's 60 million cubic meters of uh, wood that's um, uh, basically going to go to waste. And so the Ministry of Forest has tried to um, encourage the, uh, the companies to, um, to use that wood, and uh, as, a, as a result, uh, Canfor just shut down their mill. So, you know, it's sort of a sad state of affair where, you know, you, you have everyone uh, uh, basically ignoring the fact that we've got a huge resource out there that no one's using. Uh, there's going to be 60 million uh, cubic meters, which is roughly the the amount of wood cut uh, every year in uh, in BC, entire entirety of BC. That's just going to be left to rot, and no one is uh, basically standing up and saying, uh, you know what, let's put it up for bid. Let's actually get some free enterprise in there, and um, and let's see what see if anyone can come up with a use for it. Because uh, everyone is so enmeshed in the tenure system, 
uh, and not um, not offending the large corporations that hold the rights to this wood. That they we're all prepared just to see a public, and it is a public good, go to waste and and rot away. It, meanwhile, you know you've got mills that are shut down, a can for making record profit, and they won't um, they won't make any effort to uh, to use the wood. It's um, uh, it's it's staggering. Yeah, just thinking with the uh, you know a couple of three uh, uh, pellet plant mills shutting down. I mean, we could have used some of that for pellets. Plus, if we still had BC Rail, we could have log trains rolling that stuff into Prince George's. Stuff could come all the way from Fort Nelson if necessary. I think really the government, if it ever does anything, should start thinking about getting rid of that lease with the CN and uh, bringing BC Rail back and get this province back on track instead of being run by monopolies. Peter? Uh, well, yeah, like the, the, this whole problem like uh, illustrates to me that, uh, you know, the whole way that decisions are made in the, in the province regarding forestry is it doesn't serve the, the people in the communities, right? You know, like when you have, uh, you know, the municipality of Mackenzie, you have the, uh, the steel workers and you have uh, Conifex uh, complaining about, uh, you know, what's taking place here, right? I think that there's, a, you know, there is an issue, right, that has to be addressed. Uh, the problem that I see is that um, uh, the whole forest policy and decisions in forest policy are not made on the basis of what communities like Mackenzie need, but uh, there's there's other interests there that uh, that take away from that, and uh, decisions are made, uh, you know, far often far away, and uh, I think that it points to the whole idea that we need new ways of of governance, which can capture what the people, the workers, the communities, the industry, and so on. Uh, can do uh, in sustainable ways uh, in terms of the of the forest industry. I'm just thinking there, you know, if if uh, the Liberals hadn't got rid of a pertency or something, I don't think we'd be having this discussion on Mackenzie because uh, the logs in the area would be milled in the mills in the area, and that would be the end of it. And uh, they wouldn't have all these different options of you know, moving things to northern Saskatchewan and going here and going there and doing this and doing that. and uh, So that's another thing we should be looking at, uh, bringing it back and try to salvage what's left of the mills in this area or get some sort of guarantee that we're not going to shut down anymore. Herb? Yeah, that, that, that would be, uh, that would be one part of the solution. The other part, I think, is we have to stand back and, and look at the Ministry of Forest and, and ask why... Uh, when Ken Ford shuts down mills, uh, as they did in in, uh, in Fort Nelson for over 10 years, and then were able to sell the tenure there, and why, when Ken Ford shuts down its mill in Mackenzie, it's able to sell its tenure there. Uh, tenure was originally designed as a, a, you know, a, an exchange uh, for, for investment, for a mill, for jobs, uh, so the companies could have a, a security supply. It did not, it was not, it never meant to Give ownership of the of a, of a public good, which is the uh, the timber rights, uh, to a specific company. And somehow, uh, the Ministry of Forest has sat back. I, I think it's my opinion is because it's it's being captured by by corporations that there's there's no one with the guts or the the backbone to stand up to the companies and say no, you, you, this is a public good. You can't sell it privately to anybody. And, uh, and it remains a public good, and we and the public should be 
uh, involved in, in, in consultations and in the discussion on how this is, um, uh, this is played out. Uh, this, this whole uh, privatization of, of uh, de facto privatization of BC uh, is, is a mistake, and it's, uh, and it's theft and occurring in plain view, and no one's doing it. No one's standing up to, to say anything about it. And um, yeah, it's something the public has got to uh, get a little more concerned about. Well, we're into these uh, situations where we're getting all these overruns, and you know it's kind of funny. We got the the eight billion at uh, Site C overrun. At the same time, we're going to get a big overrun on the Trans Mountain Pipeline of about six billion. Makes the uh, two thousand eight hundred and seventy dollar overrun at the pool seem like small potatoes. But the fact of the matter is, uh, overruns an overrun, and it. Basically, over time, is an indication that people are not doing the jobs they're supposed to be doing, and, and we're paying a huge price for it. So, where are all the competent people? Where I mean, we're paying high high wages to get competent people, but the question is, are we getting them? So, uh, I think what we're going to do here is going to kick over to. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to take a break, and then when we come back, uh, it'll kind of be open uh, for discussion. The Prince George Community Foundation still has a few raffle tickets remaining on a beautiful diamond, gold, and aquamarine necklace donated by Daryl Hubble and Hubble designer Goldsmith. Tickets are available at the Foundation office on 7th by phone or by email to info at pgcf.ca. Must be 19 or older, know your limit, play within it. In support of the Community Foundation and valued at nearly $7,000, the draw for this one-of-kind necklace will be at noon today. The IG Wealth Management Walk for Alzheimer's returns Sunday, May 29th. Gather your friends and family to celebrate and remember people in your lives who have been affected by dementia. Participate to raise valuable funds and bring us one step closer to a dementia-friendly BC. To read more about this year's Prince George honoree Diana Cork and how you can participate in or support the event, visit the Northern BC page to the Find a Walk link at alzgiving.ca. Your Prince George Chamber of Commerce and LNG Canada are presenting this year's True North Business Development Forum Thursday, June 2nd. This one-day event will focus on building a more resilient and prosperous North, offering entrepreneurs and leaders better tools and strategies to lift up their communities and businesses. Experts on economic development, finance, and First Nations partnerships will present the most current data and provide strategies for growth. For more information on this year's True North Business Development Forum, contact your Prince George Chamber of Commerce. The volunteer organization Prince George for Ukraine is in full operation, helping local individuals and groups provide support for those being adversely affected by the war. Ukrainian families are now arriving in the city with many residents volunteering accommodations through the provincial government web portal. Thanks to the combined efforts of Shift Creative Solutions, the Edge Communications, and the Prince George Chamber of Commerce, all the information you need and links to help Ukraine are available through the website pgforukraine.ca. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. I just wanted to mention, I was up in Mackenzie, I don't know, three, two, three, four years ago, they were having a big protest there about mill shutdowns and uh, the logs being hauled out of that area to Prince George and other areas for milling. <clears throat> People weren't very happy. And uh, I think I can say, other than with the... the uh, uh, 
plant that they've got there, electrical plant or whatever, generating electricity, and a few other things that there hasn't been much been done. And I haven't heard of any politicians really raising cane and trying to solve that problem and and create some work in that area. Now, they may be doing something, but it's it's not showing. Uh, these people obviously wouldn't be out there today as concerned as they are if they felt that they were being looked after. And we've got the forest, we've got the mills, we've got the people to work there. So what's missing? It's got to be uh, some political will, and certainly uh, uh, business has a reason for doing it the way they're doing it. Anybody want to touch on that? Uh, well, I, I think one of the things that uh, of interest in the letter that uh, Conifex, United Steelworkers, and District of Mackenzie uh, put forth there, they talked about uh, how the next step is that they want to look at all the logs that are leaving the Mackenzie region and being processed elsewhere. And uh, I'll be very interested to see what you know what kind of solutions uh, that, that they put forward in terms of addressing that problem because it's been going on. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, the protest up in uh, Mackenzie uh, several years ago. Well, those logs have just been, you know, anyway, you drive up, uh, you know, to Mackenzie, and there's just truckload after truckload of, of logs leaving the area, which is, which is really unfortunate, you know, even because Mackenzie has contributed a huge amount to the provincial economy in terms of uh, manufacturing wood, you know, over the years, right? And uh, now it's in a situation where large amounts of uh, the forest resource are just leaving the region, which underlines to me the problem that we need a paradigm shift in how decisions are made and who uh, is able to make the, those decisions uh, about about forests and other resources. You know, so that to me is uh, is a, one of the lessons coming out of this. Yeah, yeah. Herb. Yeah, as far as I know, a lot of the logs leaving the region are, are actually uh, from can, can forest tenure which they're merely reselling to other companies. So Canfor basically, uh, on, the, on the basis of its tenure that was provided for them to establish a mill and provide jobs, uh, just sits back, uh, sells off the wood um, uh, in their tenure to other companies and lets the other companies harvest. And uh, basically they get paid for doing nothing. So, yeah, it, it's a strange situation. And... Uh, uh, and the fact that no one wants to talk about it, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's disconcerting. You know, we've got to, this has got to be, um, front and foremost in everyone's minds. And, um, the fact that no politicians, liberal or NDP, want to even go there, uh, it's, uh, it's a sad state of affairs. Yeah, and it could, it could be, a uh, linked to, uh, you know, the downsizing of service on BC Rail. The cost of running empty rail cars to Mackenzie and taking loaded cars back. I mean, we don't have access to all the costing and the methodology that's used by companies to, uh, you know, when they finally make a decision or something. But you might be able to make a case that it's cheaper to truck these logs to Prince George, put them through a PG mill and send them out on the CN from Prince George and, and get rid of that whole concept of doing it out in the uh, region somewhere. But that doesn't bode well for people between here and uh, Houston or between here and McKenzie or here and McBride. And we've already got a quasi-wasteland out there. So, yes, we definitely need something to be done differently. We're at 9.55 now, and I'm going to just swing this over. We were talking earlier about uh, Fortis and the $28 million. So we're just wondering if, uh, start with you, Peter, if you got an idea what should be done with that money, and then we'll ask Herb. Well, I think, you know, what, what needs to be done with the money is some ideas need to be put forward. 
but uh, that we should have some kind of process whereby the citizens of, uh, of the city have, uh, have an, uh, some say in terms of what happens, whether that's through some kind of referendum or, or other process. I think, that's, I think that's important here, that we go that route, right? Give, give, give people more. If, if that's not the case, if the, some decisions are just made arbitrarily without, uh, you know, just by uh, closed council meetings or whatever and all that, you know, then there's just going to be ongoing resentment and problems, right? And so should go the other way, de- democratize the situation more so that decisions are made, uh, you know, people are on board. Well, that's uh, what they plan on doing, but it sounds to me like they're more likely to have public meetings or something and, uh, you know, people can ask questions. And I, I found that system doesn't work very well. Firstly, it's never very attended by too many people, certainly not representative of the total population of Prince George. And then it depends what questions are asked and who's asking them and who's answering them. So, yeah, it's the same as some of the polls that we have. You know, you can ask a question in a poll, and if somebody happens to be online and reading it at the time, they can answer it. But, you know, I don't know what that poll is actually worth at the end of the day. Well, that's why, uh, like, yeah, I'm, what I'm proposing is not uh, just, uh, you know, sort of some asking questions at public meetings. We need, we need mechanisms to, to empower people so that the, the citizens have uh, input in terms of the, making the actual decisions, whether, whatever that's the way that's done, right? But the, the present way of just having consultations and all this, yeah, like, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, it's not effective, it doesn't work, it uh, creates a lot of... Uh, resentment and so on yeah. so we need new ways to do things that make it so that people can have a say in, in making the decisions real real say not uh, yeah not. I, I agree Peter Herb you want to get your two cents in there yeah I mean I agree with both Peter and Phil basically you know if, if the city can go to, to go with a referendum to the uh, citizens of Prince George and ask uh, um, how the uh, uh, how they, how they uh, or if they approve that how they spend their money, I mean, basically they should also be asking them how they, they should be able to return the money to the community. And I'm and I'm pretty sure if if they ever ask the question, uh, would you like your money returned? Um, the citizens say yes, and just send us a check. And you know that that would uh, pretty much put to rest this whole idea of a performing arts center. I think this the the um, uh, we, we've got a we've got a plea house that's not being used. We've renovated it. Um, we can make improvements uh, as we need. The thing is, no one's using it because it's, it's over a thousand bucks a night to rent it. So let's uh, let's decrease the price of that. Let's make it more available, and uh, let's utilize what we have rather than spending a whole whack of money on, on a, a new white elephant. <coughs> We've also got the the uh, one Vanier Hall at Duchess Park. I mean, we we do have some options, but. You know, you could maybe make a case uh, over the long haul for uh, for a performing arts center, but I think it has to be really, really fleshed out and explained to the people just what it is they're trying to do and who's going to attend it. I mean, if you look at the Port Theater in Nanaimo, uh, they only get about 500 people a, a maximum or average at a at a meeting, so that's not very good. So what I wanted to say before I go here is that next Monday... Is a holiday, Victoria Day, and we won't be on the air, so we all get the day off, and uh, so enjoy it. And uh, thanks, everybody, for coming on, and we'll talk to you a little later. 
After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Echo Wiley, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. Owned and operated by the Prince George Community Radio 